Welcome to The Pestle. Reviewing and breaking down movies to look for insights into the movie-making process. Hosted by Ray Finkel. Laces out, Dan. Let's dim the lights and kick off the show. Welcome, everybody, to The Pestle. Today's show is brought to you by Bloodflix. Streaming all your classic Italian horror films only on Bloodflix. Welcome, everybody, to The Pestle. I am Wes. And I am Todd. And this is a film podcast uh, by filmmakers for everyone, I guess. We try to, you know, bring everyone a little bit closer to how movies get made and how they're written and why things happen the way they do uh, from a variety of standpoints. Um, and I'm excited because today we're bringing in yet another filmmaker. I don't know if we've ever how many other filmmakers we brought on we brought on other writers we brought on artists and but not necessarily anyone with an actual film degree which neither of us have and so i'm really excited this guy's gonna just he's gonna gonna set us straight all these episodes you've had they're all garbage (laughs) terrible what are you doing (laughs) i'm excited so today we have on uh ricky holm he's the founder of an immersive technology creative agency called Chocolate Milk and Donuts, and we'll provide a bunch of linkage in the show notes, of course. Um, but Ricky has, I've been working with Ricky on and off, uh, mostly on for maybe the past eight years. I'm starting to lose track, man, but welcome to the show, brother. <laughs> Thank you, guys. Excited to be here and uh, nerd out about some movies. I don't get to do it often enough. <laughs> That's awesome. We'll dive in. Actually, yeah, tell me a little bit. So you got a film degree in Canada? Is that still a film degree up there? Yeah, yeah, kind well, not according to the second university I went to. They did not what? think so highly of it, but um I went to Vancouver Film School up in uh, British Columbia and had a fantastic um time there. Canada's great. They kick you out promptly after you graduate, um which I found out after the fact. Um, but great experience. Um, and the best part about going to VFS, I think, was that it's one of the most hands-on film schools that you can go to. Um, and I think mm-hmm. that they still hold true with that. And so, you know, we were actually getting to shoot on Super 16 film. You know, we got to tour the Kodak facilities there. And so it was like a really, a really amazing experience. And, and you know, I think they're, they're kind of known in the industry as providing folks that are like ready to actually get on set and do something. Um, versus, you know, how to read a book and tell you what it's supposed to mean. So that's exciting. And it was a great experience. Holy crap. Uh, how long have you been running Chocolate Milk and Donuts? Uh, how did that get started? What is immersive technology? It's a good question. So I think we just had our five-year, sorry, we had our five-year anniversary this year in the summer. So we just, congrats to us making yeah, it past yeah. the five-year mark. So excited about that. And so I got into, uh, it's a long story, we'll keep it short, um, but I started VR because I was working in um, doing like traditional production and a lot of it was not exciting, right? Talking head stuff, which we all do that, you know, cut our teeth and get in the business. Um, but I, I wasn't being challenged. Um, mm-hmm. it, it didn't feel like I was, I was having to use the thinking part of my brain um, to do a lot of that work. And so I was looking for a new opportunity and looking for a new way to stretch my, my, my creative um prowess, I guess. And so I had a mentor um, by the name of Andrew, who many, many years ago, as I was talking to him about, hey, I'm seeking something new, was like, hey, man, what do you about, you know, about this VR thing? And at the time, I said, I'm not a gamer. So like, I don't know anything about it. I'm not interested. And he goes, well, you know, I think that there's more to it than video games. So maybe, you know, give it a look. And I had um, my first VR experience was um, by a studio out of Toronto called Felix and Paul. Um, really, really brilliant guys. And they had created a VR or 360 video experience 
that you watched in a VR headset and you were sitting in the middle of the stage and Circus Olay performers performed um, a section of the the circus to you. So instead of sitting in the audience, right, and, and having this kind of larger experience, it was a singular experience where you had people crawling up out of the orchestral pit. You had, you know, folks coming from the ceiling and they're pulling the floorboards up underneath you and crawling out of the stage. But it was all to you. And it was this singular and really powerful kind of presence creating experience. And I remember specifically, I took the headset off and I was on the opposite side of my bedroom from where I started. <laughs> and I don't know how I did that. And, and I took the headset off and I just, I, I'll always remember this. I had this moment and I was just like, oh my God, this is a completely new form of storytelling, right? This is, this is a new paradigm. And, and again, the phone was overheating and giving me warnings and, and we're still, you know, get finding our legs in the, in the, in the industry. Um, but that's what, that's what triggered me. That's what hooked me. was that piece. And so then I, I, I started CMND as, um, as a creative agency focused on helping people leverage this technology. Um, and so we work with both clients, big and small that folks that have the idea, like, Hey, we have this VR concept, or we want to make this really cool augmented reality experience. And we basically help them through the entire creative process from coming up with what is that idea? How does that make sense for us as a business? And then actually developing those experiences and then getting them out in the field. So a full service, immersive media agency. Dang. So whenever you say immersive technology, uh, are there multiple flavors of that or does that encompass just one kind of thing? Yeah. So that's, that's a good question. Um, you know, immersive technology is, is kind of a bucket term for a bunch of different stuff. And, and it would include technology wise, virtual reality, augmented reality, 360 video, and then another kind of, you know, term you're hearing now, which is called mixed reality. In a sense, what this is, is this is an interactive story, right? We're now giving autonomy in a, in a, at certain levels over to the viewer and, and we're allowing the viewer to control the story in a sense. And, and most, and that's really one, of, I think the biggest pivots that makes this immersive. Um, the second part is, is a technology change where most of these experiences are either viewed in a VR headset or in some kind of augmented reality system, which is placing, you know, digital assets over the real world. So if a little, picture of Wes or, you know, stands up on my computer, that would be an augmented reality version of yours truly. And so all of these different technologies, which, which get confused a lot in the media as well, all kind of fall in that same bucket of immersive technology. So these interactive kind of technology based experiences, um, I guess would be the best way I could describe that without using the word in the description. <laughs> so is the difference between virtual reality and augmented reality, Augmented reality is like, like if, you know, on, on Amazon, you know, if, if you want to see what a desk looks like in your room, right, Th then it'll put the desk, it like analyzes the room and it'll put the desk in your corner or wherever you, you place it in the actual room. But then virtual reality is it's just creating the entire space. Is that, is that correct? Yeah. The, the simplest way to think about it is VR is like a magic blindfold, right? So we're okay. completely blocking out reality and we're stepping into a new place. Whereas augmented reality is we are augmenting the world around us. So that could be a face filter where I'm wearing a Santa Claus hat in the middle of um, September when it's still 90 degrees out in Texas. Or um, again, um, you're seeing um, what a new uh, teapot looks like on your kitchen counter. Gotcha. Okay. And what's the difference? You, you mentioned a term earlier called 360 video. What's the difference between 
and and 360 and VR, I assume you're you're generally the best experience is going to be with a virtual reality headset. Um, and, but what's the difference between those two types of presentations? Yeah. Um, another good question. So yes, those experiences are best normally viewed in a VR headset, right? That's the most, it's like watching, um, a new Christopher Nolan film in the theater, right? That's where it's designed to be, to watch. Yeah. It still plays well on your cell phone, but it's not the same experience and VR is the same way. You know, we develop both 360 video and VR experiences with the, the, the headset viewing experience in mind. 360 video is just what it sounds like. It's 360 degree video that's actually capturing real life things. So we're filming humans and locations and explosions and all that fun stuff. Whereas normally the term virtual reality is reserved for like rendered content. So think about stepping inside of a video game like Halo, right? That's not a real filmed environment that's rendered inside of a computer game engine. Nice. And I suppose one other additional factor would be the interactivity. Mm-hmm. Virtual reality usually also means that you're going to be able to interact with the content you're watching, even if it is maybe a, a rendered video, like we're working on a project right now that is going to include some of these interactive components where you point and click and something happens as a result of what you chose, a different video plays or there's branching mm-hmm. narratives. Um, would that Would you consider that to be virtual reality or still purely 360? No, I, I think you're. I think you're getting into a, a gray area, right? Where, mm. yeah, you know, it's if if you, it, and it was funny that you bring this up because early on in the industry there was a very, any, you know, Reddit rabbit hole that you want to go down. There's these huge debates of is 360 <laughs> video virtual reality or mm. is it not? And at the end of the day, I think it, it's a, it's a, it's the yes and no, right? You know, you can add interactivity to virtual reality, which is a key component that makes that again, create, helps create presence. Because at the end of the day, I think that's what we want to do, right? Is yeah. this new form of storytelling is it's not just putting a 2D video in a headset, right? That it, it's about creating a new type of storytelling and a new experience for the end user. And and the way that you make that experience more immersive and more cres- presence creating is through the use of things like interactive audio. So if I look this way, right, what's happening over here, or if I trigger something, right, there's a couple of really great 360 videos I've seen that are that that they won't start playing certain aspects of the film until you look at it. And like, you know, that that's still 360 video, but there's interactivity. So is that VR? Or isn't it? And so again, I think you just it's it's a I had to be older, you know, whatever yeah. you want that definition to be. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Well, we'll dive in more as uh, we continue, but the reason you're here in, uh, was, is kind of a convenient way of covering, uh, this other movie or, or really this movie was a conduit to bring you onto the show. <laughs> um, yeah. w- what are we going to cover today? Today we're covering ready player one by, um, uh, directed by Steven Spielberg. So if you haven't seen it, please pause this episode and go watch it. Uh, cause we're going to spoil a lot of stuff. For sure. We'll talk about a few things. Uh, we'll touch on some of the cinematography, packing out the frame and cheating for the camera. We'll lightly look at some of the story and writing elements. And of course, uh, Ricky's going to weigh in on the movie itself, as well as the the things they get right and wrong about virtual reality and other such stuff and things and stuff. <laughs> And a quick synopsis of the film. When the creator of a virtual reality called The Oasis dies, he makes a posthumous challenge to all Oasis users to find his Easter egg, which will give the finder his fortune and control of his world. Directed by Steven Spielberg, screenplay by Zach Penn and Ernie Klein, 
based on the book by Ernie Klein. Cinematography by Janice Kaminsky, starring Ty Sheridan as Wade and Parzival. Olivia Cook as Sam and Artemis. Ben Mendelsohn as Sorrento. Lena Waithe as H. TJ Miller as Irock. Simon Pegg as Ogden Morrow and The Curator. Mark Rylance as Halliday and Anorak. Philip Zhao as Show. Wynn Morisaki as Daito, and Hannah John Komen as Finale. I was born in 2027. After the corn syrup droughts, after the bandwidth riots, after people stopped trying to fix problems and just tried to outlive them. My parents... They didn't make it through those times, so I live here in Columbus, Ohio with my Aunt Alice. In 2045, Columbus is the fastest-growing city on Earth. It's where Halliday and Morrow started gregarious games. These days, reality is a bummer. Everyone's looking for a way to escape, and that's why Halliday, that's why he was such a hero to us. He showed us that we could go somewhere without going anywhere at all. You don't need a destination when you're running on an omnidirectional treadmill with quadraphonic pressure-sensitive underlay. James Halliday saw the future, and then he built it. He gave us a place to go. A place called the Oasis. So, I mean, there's kind of an interesting conversation that they're they're kind of having especially in that little clip about the people who are looking to uh, escape the world uh, or fix the world as opposed to now they're just trying to outlive the problems um, and so there's this undercurrent that kind of creeps throughout the entire film about are we just abandoning reality in favor of this make-believe um, or is the make-believe reality creating something of value aside from what it's doing to the rest of the world and i don't know that they really come to a, an answer or anything, but all that stuff aside, Todd, you're pretty hot and cold, mostly cold on recent Spielberg of the last 15 years or so. Um, so I'm curious, I don't expect this to have been like your favorite movie or even mostly likable. I am just curious, was there moments that you liked or did you actually like this movie? Correct me if I'm getting that <laughs> assumption wrong, but oh, you know, me. Oh, you know, me, uh, Okay, so the the first time I saw the film, I had the same feeling the first time I saw the film, which was at the beginning, I was trying to brace myself because I I never I had never read Ready Player One. I didn't know what I was walking into. It was like totally cold. So, you know, the, the pop culture thing, I figured, okay, this is part of the book, you know, the 80s thing. Like everybody loves the 80s, apparently 100 years later, and uh <laughs> Uh, which is fine. And, but like hair bands and stuff, I'm like, okay, fine. I'll just go with it, whatever. And it was, it was fine. I actually really enjoyed the first, probably the first half of it. I felt the same seeing it in the theater. I thought this is, um, you know, visually it's so cool. The, um, the race shots and the race scene was just amazing with Kong and everything. I, I was like, because it's, it's supposed to look gamey, mm-hmm. right? It's not supposed to like look super realistic, and so to that effect, it was perfect. I thought it was amazing the whole time. But then story-wise, I just got so turned off when we got back to the real world and we met everybody. The acting was really, really bad to me, like really bad. The writing was just as bad. 
And then the the ending was like very confusing. I mean, people keep coming in and out of the truck. They keep closing the door and then like Morrow comes back twice and then the cops come in and then they close the door. I'm like, what is going on? It was just very confusing at the end. So I thought I had the same feeling that I did the first time I saw it, which was the first half is fantastic. And I was at the edge of my seat and I loved it. I couldn't wait for them to find another key and everything. But it it also felt like it felt like the finding of the keys came a little easy to Parzival, you know, and, and when. It, so, for example, the um, OK, so the first one I got, I was like, oh, that's really cool. And I can totally see everyone missing that. Mm-hmm. Right. But then the second one, which was when I think wasn't the second one where they went into the shining. Yeah. Yes. OK. That was so confusing to me. Well, she's, you just got to jump onto the floating ghosts. Like that's the thing. Like, and she knows that it was very confusing to me. Didn't make much sense. Um, which is fine. That's not really a, a Spielberg thing, but the, 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 the problem that I had was when we went, like I said before, into the real world, we met all the real people and like the acting was just not good. And it, and the lighting, I don't know what the deal is. I don't understand Okay, uh, I just need to take a breath here, real, real fast. <laughs> okay. While you're thinking about that, Todd, I have a quick question. Have you have you since read the book or not? No, no. But okay. because right. here's just, the deal. Just curious. Just curious. Because here, no. Because here's the deal. Like, I it's a great story. I can tell you that if I read the book, I would love it. I, I totally would. I think I really would. But what I'm, what I'm trying to convey right now is the filmmaking aspect of it that I just uh. I don't understand how how someone like Spielberg, who is who is a modern day genius and has has made some of the most seminal works of of anyone's time. I mean, Schindler's List, Jaws, Jurassic Park, like I, uh, Indiana Jones, I could go on for days, can start making movies where it feels like the lighting is so uh, like an afterthought almost. It's just like a hey, throw a light over there. I can't, I can't see him very well in the camera. Throw, throw the light over there. Okay, cool. Let's go. You know, there's no, there's no real, it doesn't feel like there's real thought to, to like the purpose of, for things. I see spotlights everywhere all the time, as opposed to a, when it's, when it's, you know, going to, you know, highlight some aspect of, of the story that's being told or the line that's being said or the, the, the situation they're in. It's just all the time. And it really bothers me and it takes me out of it because I notice it. I mean, I know we don't talk about other movies in here, but like The Post is another great example of that where I just was like, what is happening? I don't understand. And I mean, I understand the story, but I don't understand why I'm looking at what I'm looking at. And that's how I felt again. It was like the first half was fantastic and I was on the edge of my seat and then it just lost me and it never got me back. In fact, I just kept going down this whole like, like. I don't know, this whole rabbit hole of like asking questions of, of why that? And why did they think that was a good take? That was terrible. That line was, was awful. If, even if they had to say the line, couldn't they take a better take or something? Anyway, I'm going to stop there, but that's, that's how I felt. I felt gypped after the first half of it. Yeah. Ricky. So you did read the book. um, Yeah. Multiple times. Three times. Three times. And you're the one who passed it over to me and I read it. Um, now I read it after I'd seen it in theaters already. And so I didn't, I wasn't super excited to, to dive into it. Uh, but I ended up like loving the book. Uh, it's just such a breezy read and it really 
gives a lot more satisfaction because I agree, man, a lot of the adventuring, uh, the clue hunt isn't always very satisfying in terms of the experience for the viewer, right? Mm -hmm. Clues and reveals, right? We're, we're really just passengers in that. And so outside, I really do. I same, I like the, the race at the beginning, um, cause that's a really good thrill. They set it up initially with a big failure. Um, and so the second time we experience it, it heightens that whole experience and we don't know if it's going to work or not. Um, and then it happens and it, it feels right. It feels like, Oh, we gained something through this, but the rest, uh, I don't know, especially the, the shining one. Um, I just feel like the thrills aren't maybe great enough and we don't have the info to solve the puzzles ourselves. And so it just seems like a very passive experience. That's just there to kind of enjoy a lot of the pop culture references, especially in the second one. I have different thoughts, I think with adventure, cause that's, that's its own little bottle, but I'm curious, Ricky, if like this, if the movie is good enough for you to like, enjoy it and kind of recall the fun of the book, um, or if you enjoy it for different reasons or hate it for entirely different reasons. I don't know. I don't know if you even like this movie. <laughs> <laughs> so I think, um, we were chatting about this the other day. Right. And I think I mentioned the first, I, I continue to maybe enjoy it less and less every time I see it. <laughs> and so I, I, and I made the mistake of, I think this is the case with a lot of films, right? You if you read the book first, there's a good chance you're gonna be let down by the movie. Yeah. There's very few books or movies that hold up to the quality of the, the book. And so this is another one of those. And, and I think, you know, I agree with you, Todd, like the beginning is, is so good. Even the way they set the stage, like with the stacks, right? How they have this like post, not even post-apocalyptic, but just like the part of what we, we were listening to there in that opening clip was like talking about how, you know, we're, we're just trying to outlive our problems and just disappear into this. And then when you see those opening shots of like these stacked up mobile homes on these rickety frames to me is like, Oh my God, that's exactly what I imagined in the book. Like it was, it, it did, it did a great job oh, cool. again in this, in that lighting, that scene as well. It's like, I don't know who is color correcting it, but it's fine. And, um, <laughs> And I, I thought that that beginning of it is it sets the stage really well. And I was watching it again yesterday in, in preparation for this conversation. And I also really love the way that they show we they show the way that VR kind of they explain what VR is and they answer some of the questions that you guys were chatting about at the beginning, right? As as Parzival's you know or Wade, I guess at that time is is climbing down the stacks. All of his background are all of these people doing different VR activities, and and it aligns. And I think it does a really good job of teaching the audience. Oh, this is oh, I understand VR now. I get it. I under it's this it's this new world I can step into, and I can go surfing, or I can, you know, be a stripper, or I can do whatever it is that I want to do. And then again, the race is fantastic, and the amount of cultural references that they get into that race. Um, which only Spielberg could do this. And I'll, we'll get into that potentially later on why I think that only someone like Spielberg could do this movie for good or for bad. Um, <laughs> but the amount of, of pop culture stuff that they slice into the race in itself is phenomenal. They've got the T-Rex from, you know, Jurassic Park. They've got Kong. They've got, you know, um, Bigfoot, the monster truck. I mean, anyone who grew up in the 80s and 90s knows who, you know, what Bigfoot <laughs> is, the monster truck, right? And so that's all fantastic. And then, you know, I liked... It's it, to me. It's almost like they they ran out of budget or time to finish writing the second key hunt because I think the shining thing is great. Great idea. Totally. I mean, it's it's yeah. it's scary and it's freaky and it brings you back. So again, if you grew up in that era, if you ever like stole a copy of The Shining from your parents when they weren't looking and watched or something, it freaked you out. <laughs> yeah. And so they they did a good job, I think, of doing that. But then again, to your point, it's like all of a sudden, you know, it's like wait, so this woman that 
he's in been in love with for eternity he's making her dance with zombies in eternity in this thing and so it was it was a little confusing and strange and i'm trying to think i haven't read the book in a while i'm I'm, i don't remember feeling that way or i don't remember feeling kind of let down by the hunt in the book right they kept that Mm. they kept that tension really well and you weren't sure if parzival um was going to make it right if he was going to be the one to find the key and, and they kept that heightened tension uh and so anyway they, they definitely that that falls off in in the film especially near the end in the book does does artemis find the second key or is that a, a film thing or was it parzival uh you know what it might have been parzival it might have been Artemis. i can't really remember i i one of the things that was, I think, smart, and I appreciate them trying to add something new to the movie experience for the readers. And I think that's the whole point of going away with some of the treasure hunts totally. from the book, right? But one of the interesting things that the book did with like the opening treasure hunt was to reveal a little bit about Halliday, the creator of the Oasis, through the way he inserted the the hunt itself because one thing that's left out of the movie version is how hard it is to travel from one area of oasis to another like that costs money right and so in the in the book they emphasize you know he wanted to level the playing field so that if you were broke and poor you had a chance to win this as well and that's implemented through the use of finding the first key uh being on a particular kind of planet that's accessible even to the kids and so that was one of the cool things and then the second clue was uh some uh like pantomiming a, a movie i forget which movie but and i can't remember if that was artemis or not but there was that element of they're helping each other they're accidentally clanning up or just not admitting out loud yeah and so i think they still keep that element in there um but yeah i'm I'm same as ricky i'm having a trouble like picking picking that up um but i agree with ricky like i think you said it really well that opening exposition is flawless like they spend the first 10 to 12 minutes uh catching the audience up to speed right about what vr is what the oasis is the way it operates who the main characters are uh, the the purpose of the Easter egg hunt and while introducing us to Halliday and everyone else, like that's a pretty flawless and seamless breezy 12 minutes of exposition. Uh, that's hard to pull off. Uh, and that's one of the better sections of the, of the movie. And I, I, I agree with Todd, the more we're in the real world, the less I like the film, the more we're spending time in the Oasis, which may be intentional, right? Because uh, that's the experience of the people in this universe. Uh, they don't want to be in the real world either. They want to be in the Oasis. And so maybe it's a way of getting us to abandon. I don't know if that really serves a story function. Um, yeah, you know, that's right. And, and I'm, now that you're talking, Wes, I'm, the book is coming back to me. You've triggered some thoughts, you know, and, and, and it, the end of the book, um, I remember liking it because it uh, Ogden Morrow, right, Hol- Holiday's partner, their Holiday's partner, he becomes more involved, right? Mm-hmm. And, and there's certain rules that he's not allowed to break, yeah, and be- or he can't, or it'll like it just the the way the system, the game has been developed. But he becomes there's a bit more of like a, I mean, they still use the orb of Ocelox or whatever, <laughs> like that's a component from the book, but they're 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 having more trouble in the real world. And it becomes a little like more raw in the book and, and they end up flying out into like the middle of nowhere. And like, you know, the Ogden Morrow, like has more involvement in, in the, the book and the film, he's almost like an afterthought. He's kind of a weird character. And like you said, at the end, Todd, it's very confusing. 
right? How how all of a sudden they just like the cops just like give a shit and like it's just like it's very what the hell's going on? The end of the book is not like that. And again, I don't know if it's a budget thing or if they just were rushing to get it out or if they time know, constraints just didn't, didn't care. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I um, mean, but, I feel like this is the kind of film that would unfortunately serve best as like a limited series, right? A 10 episode thing. Because one of the problems that I had is emotional buy-in. And when you're trying to get through so much exposition and so much story and so many characters, uh, it gets really hard to create all the stakes that you want, right? The real world versus the oasis. Um, because what, what they want is for what happens in VR to matter in the real world, in reality. Um, and so they're trying to create these life and death consequences, right? Um, and they constantly are showing you why things that are happening in reality are impacting inversely into the oasis right the car chase that interplays with the final sequence of him unlocking the keys and all that and i think they're just trying to do a little too much and we need to care more about the characters and the survival of the oasis and hate the cartoony villain that's trying to spoil it as well as murder our heroes and so i don't know it's just they're spreading themselves thin the stakes just don't really grab you and ultimately it just kind of comes off as a I don't want to say cheap, but as a very simple play on just enjoy inhabiting a bunch of pop culture references. Like that's yeah. ultimately what it comes off as a slick version of creating all these simple, you know, kitschy references, which it works. I mean, my first time watching this, ultimately I, I walked out pretty happy. I was like, that was fun. I got to hang out with a bunch of random eighties, nineties and seventies references some of which were before my time, but because they're so popular, right? You can't help but be familiar with them, whether it's, I don't know, The Shining or probably a thousand things that I didn't pick up. But yeah, I think that's kind of the Achilles here. Whereas if you spent 10 hours where you're just slowly evolving some of these things and like hinting at the way Artemis is a has her own show, right? In the book, right? She's this popular pop culture figure herself and um, she has a following and that adds to her mystique a lot more instead of just a girl that he sees kind of across the room and uh, he tries to build her up in one or two sentences like uh, that was Artemis and H is like the Artemis and it's like that's as much as we can really cram into this two hour 20 minute movie as opposed to like hey let's let some of these things breathe and we know about her way before we get to actually meet her now you can start to build in mystique and some of these elements that i think are just not helping us land emotionally with with the consequences of everything that's going to unfold mm. yeah and we and we know spielberg can do that yeah you know what i mean like mm-hmm. band of brothers i mean he can he can do stuff over long spans of time I, I I love that idea. That would have been awesome. Yeah. I would have I would have loved to have like an episode every Friday, kind of like how, how Apple TV does, you know. Um, I, I am curious, yeah. Ricky. You said you had a bunch of. Uh, you said when you were watching it this time, you were picking out a bunch of oh, that's so Spielberg or just elements of Spielbergian. Please share from your from your <laughs> educated share. mind instead of my just well, like. So, so I, I come from a I come uh, again. I'm I'm probably. I mean, I'm more of a producer now than I am anything else. And so I think about a lot of stuff through a business lens. Mm. And one of the things, again, that you go back to this opening scene, and, and this is what I meant earlier, where I said that only Spielberg could do this, is you look at the, and they did a fantastic job of this, and that's with the opening scene, with the shining thing, with all of it, is they do such a phenomenal job of pulling in all these pop culture references. And you have to think about, like, legally, 
how tricky is that? They had Warner Brother cartoons. They had movies from Paramount. They had, I mean, they had they had pulled stuff in the last 50 years of cinema and TV and somehow gotten the rights to smash it all in, not including all the music that they used. And I think they had, right, that was the Van Halen song or, you know, that was at the beginning mm-hmm. of this. And and it's just, it it's, you know, that's probably a benefit and a curse of the type of industry we live in now where everything is consolidated that's a great point is that why they ran out of money at the end (laughs) (laughs) right they have these phenomenal you know and so i don't know they you know whatever it's i don't know what the budget of this film is i'm sure it was a lot but i bet a good chunk of it was just you know and i i think about that because what other this this was the best setup for a uh why am i blanking on his name but a jack nicholas cameo ever Oh yeah. In the history of filmmaking, like why does he not break through yeah. a door? I mean, they set it up. They starts banging the, the you axe, know, he pokes yeah. the hole in the door with an axe and you're waiting for Jack Nicholas to poke his head through and say <laughs> something and they never do it. And that's so why I was I always, you know, think with myself like, well, that was an agent that was probably being a little too snickery or, you know, a little too picky <laughs> yeah. on their budget um to get Jack in there and they weren't willing to pay his fee. But but they do, you know, that that was one of the things that I noticed this time is is how you know, they did, I think they did a great job. Spielberg did a great job of, um, of being able to execute and pull all of these pop cultural references together. And even some tooting his own horn again with like the shot mm-hmm. of the T-Rex from some of his own films. And yeah. so anyway, I really enjoyed that the second time. I got a little kick out of that. It's almost like I felt like I was sitting back with Spielberg next to me laughing, being like, yeah, <laughs> I see what you did there. That's yeah. fun. <laughs> um, and well so said. I think if you, yeah, if, if you, if you, you know, if you if you look at the film more from that perspective, where if you go back to some of his early work, right, he mm. was he wasn't established as a modern day genius yet, right. And so now that he has, right, I wonder if this is a little bit more like popcorn, you know, popcorn movie type thing, where it's like, ah, Definitely. we're just gonna have some fun with this, and you know, the book was cute, and we're just gonna lean into that, and we're not gonna worry about you know creating a huge emotional connection with the audience here because he kind of doesn't have to do that anymore. He's, you know, he can get away with these fun, you know, yeah. just have a good yeah. time. Just go. Yeah. <laughs> the, uh, I looked it up. The budget was 175 million. Oh, that actually seems low. Yeah. Yeah. yeah for a movie I mean, like this. Yeah. yeah. It feels low. And yeah. And again, you don't know too, like, I forget how everything is structured now in terms of all these studios, but Spielberg kind of owns a very large portion of like the entire movie business. And so if, if he's pulling... Um, and I have a thought about the actors in this film as well that ties into this. But if he's pulling, you know, a lot of these um, these licensed visuals from from his own, you know, collection of whatever he property he owns now, then that also is, you know, for you and I, this would have cost a billion dollars to make because right. we've been paying someone like oh, Spielberg yeah. to put his T Rex in it, <laughs> yeah. you know, or whatever yeah. the case might be. Yeah. Um, which, which, and I don't want to jump too quickly ahead or into a different topic, but that was something else I was thinking about yesterday that, you know, and, and I'm trying to think of another good Spielberg movie um, to, to reference. I had one this morning, but it, it seems like, you know, Spielberg's done a good job of being able to make blockbuster films without A list actors. And I find mm. that really interesting. Whereas if, yes, there's some great actors in this film, but if you go look at the catalog of the other films, I mean, this isn't a Brad Pitt, right? This isn't, you know, that type or that level of actor. And and he's done that on and off in, in some of his other films. You know, again, I even like Jurassic Park. I don't think any of those folks were, that was kind of their, some of their breakout roles when they did that. And so Spielberg has this way of being able to find actors that are 
able to play the parts, whether in Todd's opinion, well or not, um, mm-hmm. and still make successful. And I mean, now I'm talking about it from a business perspective, financially successful, you know, films, you know, people pay with their, you know, their, you know, people, whatever rate movies with their wallet, if you want to say it that way. And so I just, I was thinking about that too, last night where I think I'd mentioned to Wes, you know, prior to this, that the, I was trying to figure out who the girl was. It's like, how come I recognize her? And she's in like sound of metal, which again, not to get off track, but like, that's a phenomenal movie inside and out and from a filmmakers and storytelling perspective. But again, outside of that, she's, and I forget her name. I had a list of them pulled up Olivia here, Cook, right? Yeah. But um, Olivia, you know, she's she's not like a huge, massive star. And, and so anyway, I just found that interesting that Spielberg has a way of creating these massive blockbuster films um, without maybe following always the traditional um, route of Hollywood filmmaking. And I bet uh, it has something to do with the, the, the concept, right? The subject matter, because whenever you have when people are showing up for, oh, we're, we're, we're coming to this because it's a crazy VR uh, video game pop culture phenomenon mm. and or it's there's dinosaurs we're there for the dinosaurs then to some degree maybe not having a listers is a is a feather in your cap because mm. you can support the story a lot stronger now and let these other things be the centerpiece um, great point interesting and that yeah. you know and, and plus it's cheaper <laughs> like there's there's nothing wrong i with mean that yeah either. like can you imagine tom cruise in in jurassic park right <laughs> No. Do you know what I mean? Or something like that? Yeah. Like Brad Pitt? Like, right. no, it's not gonna, it's not gonna fly. I don't even, I don't even know if he's acting back then, but anyway, good point. For sure. Huh. That is interesting. That's a great point, Wes. I wouldn't have thought about that. We can touch a little bit on cinematography. Like there's some very simple, very standard. And to me, it's also very Spielbergian things that he does, right? The, a lot of atmosphere, the haze, especially in the intro when he's putting on the, the headset, uh, it's just pumped with full of haze, right? This little smoky substance that you kind of fan out throughout the room so that when you create this backlighting, it creates these light streaks and it's just it's beautiful it's he loves that kind of stuff it's not in every one of his shots for sure but um it's something that it's very old industry pro but i think the other stuff that to me is even more him uh is the way he packs the frame now this works in almost any type of filmmaking you want to do, whether it's standard 2D like this, but more is usually more. Like, uh, sometimes you hear people say less is more, uh, especially for an adventure film. More in the frame usually is a better payoff. The more stuff that you can have happening, like actors crossing the screen, stuff inside the frame, boxes and layers and depth. And I, one, and the reason I even made this note was we were watching you know, it's towards the end of the, uh, of the film and Sorrento's on the phone with finale and he's telling her like, kill the kids or whatever, you know, villainous thing he's, he's commanding. And it's a close up of him, but over his shoulder in the background, we see an actor walk across the, the screen. And I was just like, that's hilarious. This is just one line of dialogue. Uh, but he is not going to miss a moment to create extra motion or something interesting within the frame. Um, and it's because more often than not, and, maybe even especially with uh, VR more usually gets you more as long as you know why you want more. Uh, there's times whenever you definitely want less in order to emphasize something else that's happening on screen. But with Spielberg, the more he can cram in, I think he's usually happiest uh, that way. And similarly, like he does a lot of cheating for the camera and this is something all of us filmmakers do. Uh, but 
it's a common film trick, right? We're going to cheat perspective um, in order to achieve a result to help tell the story for the viewer, right? So if you think about the race sequence, whenever he stops and everyone goes and he's about to decide to go backwards, there's something happening in this that he emphasizes through like four or five shots, uh, which is everyone at the starting line takes off except Parzival. And we see everyone move away. We see uh, him in one scene just kind of stay as we fly away. And then we see a, like a, a side view mirror of Artemis's uh, mm-hmm. motorcycle and uh, he's large in the fr- frame and then he shrinks away. Now, if we're talking about a linear linear reality, right by the time we cut to that scene, that shot of him in the, uh, the side view mirror, he should have already been way smaller, right? This has been several seconds and these cars are going from zero to a hundred in like 0.5 seconds. And so, But in order to sell the shot and to sell the idea, like he kind of rewinds time to a certain degree so that the frame shows him large in the side view mirror because we're already the side view mirror is already tiny in the frame. And the last thing you want is to try to communicate this feeling that uh, she's seeing something happening that's catching her attention, that's drawing our attention. And you need to just kind of cheat a little bit in order to sell the idea, even if it's not linearly true. Mm. And similarly, we see those kind of ideas of, you know, several times Artemis, um, when she gets locked up into her little prison cell, she sees in her VR headset, uh, one of these, her other subjugates like gets shocked, right? They're not moving fast enough. Yeah. Right. And he gets shocked. Um, and then we cut to the reality of her in her cage. And then the person right next to her gets shocked. Um, and they fall down and hit their knees or whatever. Now, that's not really how VR works in the sense of that guy could have been anywhere. Like he didn't have to be right next to her just because he was right next to her in VR. Like those are two completely disconnected realities. But in order to sell the idea that what's happening in VR is also happening, having a real world effect, he just happened to set this person uh, right next to her cell. And that's just a very simple cheat that the audience is never going to think twice about because all we're trying to do is communicate something to the viewer and the reality doesn't really make sense. And it's never going to be called into question. I don't think there's anybody in the industry better than Spielberg at cheating perspective. And Mm -hmm. similarly in the, in the final battle, he Chucky, right. Gets thrown into this crowd and he kills (laughs) a bunch of people. And then we cut to (laughs) the, the war room, the IOI, and there's like a cluster of red deaths and a, same thing, right? Godzilla falls and lands on a strip of IOI people. And then we cut to, you know, reality and a strip of IOI people, you know, read out and die like that. Those things, there's no reason that just because they're seated next to each other in the room that they would actually be seated next to each other on the battlefield. That's just not how right. the, the, the whole system works, but it's doing something to create an effect for the viewer and it's satisfying and it's super fast. He's not giving you time to think about it or question it, right? It's just there to create a moment. Um, and it's just simple, genius visual storytelling at its best. Uh, similarly, and in a different way, cheating for the camera, uh, holding a frame. This is something that I ride a little bit differently. Um, but this is something that most big budget mainstream storytellers do. Because you're trying to communicate to, uh, for lack of a better phrase, the dumbest audience member. And this is where, like, uh, Finale, the villain, gets into their van as they're doing this chase sequence, right? Um, and she pulls out her gun 
and then holds the gun for like eternity while Dido winds up a kick and knocks the gun out of her hand. Right. And so she gets in, she frames this moment and then we cut to Dido as he sees what happens and then he winds up a kick. Like she could have blasted all of them in that amount of time, but all you're doing right is holding this frame so that you could cut around and show how uh, everything's unfolding without making it go too fast so that someone in the audience misses exactly what's happening. Um, that's common tactics, but uh, I usually write it a little bit closer to the speed of reality, uh, depending on the project and the film and the purpose and blah, blah, blah. But yeah, those see are- that, that all makes a lot of sense. I didn't, I never even thought about, you know, they don't need to be next to each other in reality. If even if they're next to each other in virtual reality, that is brilliant. Yeah, absolutely brilliant. The gun situation at the end is lazy. It's absolutely, it dries me up the wall when I watch movies when that shit happens. It makes me insane. Like that would never happen. If you're trying to tell me a story in reality, show me reality. You know, like, and I don't mean reality as we know it now. I mean, right. reality as in like, if I have a gun and I want to shoot you, I'm going to shoot you. You are not, there's no amount of kicking or speed that you could possibly have to stop that. I'm going to shoot you unless you're Bruce Lee or Jackie Chan, which you are not. So you are dead. And that is, the, that's the thing. And, and the thing that they could have done differently if he wanted to, um, would be to compose that into a single shot, into a single yes. frame. That way you can keep the speed legit while telling all those bits of pieces of information and so if maybe instead of these close-ups you could have gone to like a medium wide that Mm -hmm. you're able to insert both of these things all at once and then it makes and then it makes him look like a badass yeah like you know and it makes me feel like i'm watching a real fight you know anyway yeah Yeah, that's Um, a good point i'm glad you know spielberg needs to learn from us how to really (laughs) (laughs) you know that's the thing i'm sitting here thinking and i'm i'm you know i'm saying all this stuff and i know that i've been shitting on spielberg for a couple of years now and it it's a terrible thing because who the hell am i i am no one and anyone who listened to this you know like i'm i'm nobody but that i am i am also the opinion Right. Yeah. I'm also the one me and millions of other people are the ones that are going to remember his legacy are the ones that are going to say this guy was the best ever. So if I if I watch Tom Brady playing football and he throws two interceptions in, in the final two drives of the Super Bowl and loses the game. I mean, I don't know what to tell you. Yeah. You're not the best. Yeah. You know, that's just bottom line. And so if you make movies like this. It's okay to point that out. That's our function. Yeah, as it's the okay audience. to say, yeah. dude, you shat the bed, bro. You're better yeah. than this. Yeah. You know, g- revisit a Schindler's List, revisit Jurassic Park. You know, where did the dinosaur come from? It, like, yeah. th- those, these questions are things that like you created. You, you are the, are the mastermind that said, you know what? Screen left. Yeah. And nobody thinks about it. So you're brilliant. So let's see that brilliance. Even, you know, when you get older and you start making, you know, movies like Ready Player One where where you can use this kind of stuff. And anyway, sorry. Yeah. Well, it's it's interesting that you guys bring that up, right? Because there's a I think there's a fine line or there's a difference maybe between like, again, Wes, I didn't think about what you said earlier. And it, it's a brilliant storytelling tactic, right? Where when when Kong at the end collapses and kills all those IO I, or Sixers and it shows the room go with the yeah. red lights. Again, the, why would they be staying next to each other? And that, that doesn't make sense. But is from a storytelling tactic, 
it's brilliant. Yeah. Right. And and that that is really interesting to see. You know, and I understand, you know, if you go to the van scene, which you guys are talking about, yes, that mean woman or whoever she is, right? The the kind of bad lady. Denali. She could have killed everybody or just shot the driver right away and like <laughs> the van would have crashed and the the, scene, the movie would have been over. And so, you know, is that is that mm, Tonally, this is a different movie, right? This is Goonies. This isn't uh, Munich. <laughs> so, <laughs> exactly, exactly. And that's what I was gonna say. Is like, is like playing, playing to your audience, right? Yeah. You have to, you got to set it up. And you know, I think what Daito or something is like a kid, yeah. You know, and this is like some like hardened yeah. badass bitch that's been around forever, and it's like she's like a professional hitman for the world's <laughs> most evil corporation. Like, right. it doesn't matter if you kick her one time; she's probably just gonna be like, okay. Boom, you're yeah, dead. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but again, you're you're this is a probably, you know, a, a movie that wasn't necessarily designed for a, yeah. the same crowd who's gonna go see Sicario. <laughs> so <laughs> <laughs> It's so great because we just did that last week. Um, did uh, was there ever a moment for either of you guys in this film where you actually physically rolled your eyes? Or was what did you just like digest it all i i there think, was ricky sorry yeah i yeah I, I i just the end the end is so bad and i was joking with wes that i was watching it last night and right up until the final scene i was watching on hbo and hbo just crashed and i was like it's late i'm going to bed and i didn't actually rewatch the final scene i know what happens you know but it's like it's just like yeah they just get out of the van and there's like a crowd of people cheering and they're just like you've said it's like no but what what is that like that's such a yeah. shit just like and like uh, yeah you know and so I, I had a hard time with that i i literally rolled my eyes okay. and there's a couple of i think vr technical things um where i see them happening and i kind of roll my eyes but but i'd have to think about an example um okay. i, I want to dial into that here in a second to answer your question todd i think my big eye roll was the whole he left his password on his rig like that's just a little <laughs> too easy for our heroes like i get what you're oh trying to uh, you know that's right and that that scene in the book is so good. Yeah. It's so good. How what they happens actually in the book? hack that. So it's it's a whole different flip situation. Par- Parzival is because if if you remember, these guys go into indentured, right? They get picked up for having debt or whatever, and so he pur- purposefully goes into debt and allows himself to be captured. But he because he kind of becomes a recluse, like he becomes so obsessed that he like cuts the world off and like welds his apartment door shut and like goes into this really dark yeah. place. And at the end of that, he, he basically the whole time you find this out after the fact is he's setting himself up to be captured. And when he gets inside of the IOI complex, he's got all these little crumbs laid out so he can from the inside hack his way into the system. And it's much more interesting yeah. than what they do. I know exactly Todd they there's it's such an interesting part of the book and it gets dark and you think he's not going to make it and it's like really like he's and it's like this really dark kind of place we go and it's great it's wow. so good. that's awesome. how he hacks in it's great and, he, and then on, he, they have these other little layers where he's also like understanding I need to work on my physical health and so he implements a lock on the game that forces him to exercise before he can actually get back into the oasis that's right and it controls his calorie s- counts. And- I'm even more mad now. I w- I'm going to go read the book. This I would be. L- I don't know how you guys are watching this movie, telling me this and thinking that this could be good at all. It seems like like the best aspects of it were left out. It's so breezy. I think once you get started after like three or four chapters, you're like, I just 
a little bit more a little bit and you're just done okay all of a sudden it's over um, i'm gonna go read it now it's it's a pretty satisfying read i so before we get into some of the more tech savvy elements i'm curious were there any fun pop culture moments that you particularly enjoyed so for me like I think my favorite moment would be the alien chestburster scene, right? Where mm-hmm. uh, the the Mortal Kombat character, right, and she like bursts out and she like kind of chews through it, and then I just love how she also ends it, where she's just kind of tapping her teeth. Yeah, <laughs> like that to me is really fun. The the Zemeckis cube, he solves it right, and then they play this little quick back to the future audio clip twinkle um and that's genius uh there's there's others but i'm just curious whether any standout little fun moments for y'all me okay uh (laughs) i wasn't sure um that's a really great question i loved that that aliens moment because i forgot about it yeah i forgot that it was artemis and until that happened and i i realized when it when it bursted out, I was like, "Oh my god, what what?" And then she like carves it the the figure off of herself, and it reveals her. So I I, I loved that actually. That was really good. But I, I think honestly, probably the race, just because there was so much mm-hmm. in it, like the first race when we mm-hmm. when he loses, yeah. just because there was so much in it, and it it felt really awesome, really intense, and I just I loved all the seeing the T Rex. I remember. The T-Rex was the first like, like obvious one for me where I, cause I knew Spielberg directed it and I thought, oh man, yeah, yeah, that's awesome. Okay. <laughs> brings me back. That's really cool. Uh, so yeah, I would just, I would say the race more than anything. So I, I picked up one last night that was interesting. I'd never noticed it before. So I, I second what you say, Todd, the beginning of it's so fun, right? You, the opening 15 minutes of the movie, just put it on loop. It's fine. Uh, yeah. And, but at the in the final battle when they're trying to, you know, when they have that orb kind of blocking everybody out and there's, they, they basically call, right. They call all of the, 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 the entire, um, oh, yeah. uh, Oasis to come Oasis. help, right. Hey, come, you know, come save us. And you get, you get some, you know, some interesting stuff in there, but there was one scene last night where there's this group of guys. And I don't know what the name of the dude from Halo is. If he actually has a name. Oh, Master yeah. Chief. Yeah. He Master does. Chief. Uh, oh, what is it? Master Chief. Master Chief, that's right. Master Chief. Okay, there's like a group of like six or eight Master Chiefs running together, and then they cut to a real-life shot, and it's a bunch of like nerdy gamer kids <laughs> running down the street, and it just brought me back. So I was like, wow, that like that was a fun little Halo reference, considering that it was like very stereotypical, a bunch of like nerdy young men like playing yeah. Halo that are also then playing Halo in their group of Halo. And it was just, I, I kind of picked it up last night. I was like, oh, that's cute. That's awesome. Um, so I know that was my favorite, um, but uh, that was a good one. I mean, yeah. a great visual is, of course, is like the Iron Giant fighting Godzilla. That's yes. oh that's really enjoyable, as well as the little T Terminator Two mm-hmm. thumbs up the Terminator. Yeah. Oh, that was <laughs> yeah. so great! So I love y'all. You're bringing that back. Yeah, that was <laughs> that, that was, was really great. great. And I really did appreciate that that final Easter egg because adventure is famed for that uh, among a certain group i guess um adventure the artara game um having that little easter egg i really appreciated that because i remember that as a kid i was probably i don't know all of two or three years old the first time i saw that i was confused as hell about what was happening and what my my brother and a couple of his friends were playing atari and they were trying to execute this this easter egg and I didn't know what they were doing or why they're doing it or even what they found whenever it popped up on screen. I was like, this is very strange art. I couldn't, 
I couldn't digest that this was words. Uh, it just looked like mm. uh, the game aired out to me. I was like, oh, this is it's broken. But kind of seeing that discussed and on screen, I was like, oh, that's really freaking cool because I too have a you know some vague light memory of that in my own childhood. And so I appreciate them and the little conversation. It gets quiet. Everyone's watching and he's discussing uh, the importance of the creator being recognized. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's that's worthy. That's a worthy little conversation that they're having, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, but all that aside, I, I would be curious, switching gears slightly, VR 360 filmmaking. So we do a lot of this, right? I'm, I serve as your creative director for uh, Chocolate Milk and Donuts. Um, and so we are constantly working on projects. I'm curious what you would best practices, like give me some of the rules of 360 filmmaking that maybe they don't adhere to very well in this movie, especially I think they try to try, but sometimes it's like, I don't know if they're like the movement uh, is, is a very finicky one for instance. Um, but what would you consider some of the rules of 360 filmmaking? Well, three, the rules of 360 filmmaking are, are one thing, but you know, I think the, the, you know, when it comes to the movie, right, that's the one that was part of what what caught me was the what we call teleportation. Right. And so the way that the inner ear. Right. And that's a problem in VR is teleportation, a case how we move. Right. So if we want to move the viewer, I'm sitting on a couch right here. Right. If I want to get up and move to a kitchen in VR, how do we do that? Because VR creates this sense of presence in, in your mind. So your brain actually thinks what's happening is real. And that's a very kind of just, they don't really say that in the film, but they just almost imply that it is, it's virtual reality. I think we all make that leap, you know, but, but when you actually do it and you get up or you like, you see a lot of it where people are flying and they're falling over and they're, you know, doing all this stuff in the movie, which looks good on camera. That's a really big problem in actual virtual reality creation is, is how do you allow a human being who's our brain is, is thinking about, trying to figure out if, okay, if I'm walking at my normal walking speed and the world is going by at twice that speed, my brain goes, wait a minute, that's, that, there's something wrong, right? Your inner ear is being tricked and you, and then what happens is you get motion sick, right? You literally get physically sick. And that was a big problem actually very early on in VR. And so it's, it's interesting. I was watching it last night again and, and I was looking at like, sometimes they do a really good job and like they talk about the omnidirectional treadmill at the beginning of the film. And then partway through the movie, it's almost like they give that up. And it's like these guys are running and leaping and jumping and doing all this stuff in the VR, the virtual world. And then you cut to like a scene and the person's just standing there or like Sorrento, his rig, he's in a chair like this whole time. He never moves. And it's like he would be vomiting the entire time he does that because his body would know he's laying in a chair and he wouldn't get the physical like the his physical movement of his body would not align to what his avatar is doing in the in the digital world and it would it would literally make him vomit you know and so there's a whole conundrum there in the movie that i think they do a good job of of teaching the user about that at the beginning with these lines about the treadmill but then again spielberg kind of we've bought into the disbelief we'll throw that out the window we don't have to worry about that we need to make sure his chair is really freaking cool um (laughs) regardless if that actually would work in the real world or not and so, you know, that, that I found kind of really interesting, but I will say one of the things that I was, that I noticed that I thought was, was brilliant is the shot that they do in the van. 
and I'm jumping backwards a little bit, but the shot in the beginning when the first time that Wade puts on the VR headset, he puts it on his and he slows way down and the camera like swings around and comes right through the side of his head and into the VR goggles. And it does a really, that's one of the best shots of the film, my opinion, because it, it makes the viewer, someone who's never worn a VR headset, I hold them and I tell clients all the time, like, oh, you put it on your face and you're standing in a place and they're like, what? <laughs> I, I don't get it. And so until you put a VR headset on, it's really, it is hard to, to, to mentally grasp what it is. That shot does it and it does a very, very good job of it. And so I love that. I noticed that yesterday, um, again, more than I did in the past on how I think brilliant that shot was at, at creating that connection because that's a hard concept for a lot of people. Um, to grasp in, in reality. Heck yeah. No, I mean, and if you've never experienced that, that that's one of my big problems of, you know, I want to play some of these games and, uh, I just don't have the space to move around and the teleportation aspect. I, I last five or 10 minutes before I start feeling super nauseous uh, and I have to take it off. And so the experiences where that don't require you to move around usually pay off a lot better, uh, which is one of the nice things about what we do, which is, uh, you know, 360 videos where we're taking a camera that has six cameras on it and it's capturing, if you imagine uh, a cube, a uh, six-sided cube, right? You, you put a camera lens on each side of those cubes. Well, now that can represent your head. So any space where you plant this camera down is the camera's uh, stand in for your head, um, almost like a time travel aspect. Um, and now whenever you play it back, your your head is in the position of where that camera was. And now you can look around all around you, um, even if you can't necessarily move about the space. But that's OK, because normally, right, we don't usually and it's not always safe to try to move around um, if, if you're not prepared for that kind of thing. Uh, and so watching them in the movie run across the street, you know, I was just like, oh, they're going to get smacked by a car. Like, this isn't good. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a real problem. Yeah. You know, they they do that shot. It's great in the in the film where the the late the mom, the kids like, hey, mom. And you look in the background, there's the kitchens on fire. <laughs> She's yeah. like, go ask your father. And like but then she you know, ends up getting getting shot anyway. Um and I, I joke, so it's the, at the beginning, Oculus, one of the industry leaders, right, in the VR space, has done a really good job there. They have this really cute, these really cute safety videos that you watch when you put on the VR headset the first time you set up your digital playground, basically. And they have all these little things where they're, like, showing people, like, shooing their cat out the door and shutting the door behind the cat and, like, putting the kid in the crib. And so yeah. they're, they're trying to, like, oh. you know, they're trying to solve that problem of, like, what you said, Wes, is, like, VR... In, in a perfect world, the best VR experience would be like imagine going into like a Costco or Walmart sized warehouse and getting clearing everything out and just having this baseball or you know football sized flat surface to to go and and move around and that allows us to like physically run and that would translate into VR. Where right now you can't do that in your living room. At least my living room's not big enough to do a sprint in. Um, <laughs> and so and so you trick you know we use tricks in VR. Teleportation is one of them to allow us to get that full immersion. Because I think, you know, there was a there was a hype cycle with every new technology. There's a hype cycle, right? And and there's been a very large hype cycle with virtual reality. I probably one of the reasons that Spielberg pushed this movie when he did, he's very, very smart as a businessman. And so, you know, the hype of VR was everybody wanted what we see in Ready Player One, right? Like I want to go surfing in Hawaii 
on 80 foot waves with my best friends that are spread out around the globe. Like that's what we all want to do in VR. We want to ski on the pyramids, right? But, but you can't, it, we, the technology is not there yet. It just isn't. It's incredibly powerful technology. And, you know, Wes, you and I have done some really powerful experiences that are, that are, that are changing people's lives for the better, you know, but, but at the end of the day, it's, it's not there. Like we, when we're done with this call, we, we can't go hop on and, and go skiing on the pyramids together and have it feel real, right? We're just not there yet. But there was this, again, there was this hype cycle that was, was promised when VR first came out is it was like, dude, it's going to, this is what you can do. You can do everything. And people got into it and they were just like, oh, I get sick if I try and stand up off my couch. And so, you know, there's, that is still a real problem in this business. Mm -hmm. And so again, it's really, really powerful technology, but, but we're still figuring out some of those technical aspects. And there are some interesting tricks that people are figuring out to solve those, but we're nowhere near from a a technology perspective, what Ready Player One is. Um, And just before I, I jump off this topic, one last thought that I that I think is just really interesting is so I made the comment of having like a Costco sized warehouse. What you can do is you can you can cheat the brain just a little bit in VR. So imagine you have a cube, right? And and you want to walk, you know, or if you have a hallway, let's say imagine go, let's go back to Doom, right? So in Doom, one of the best, you know, early video like first person shooters, is you would just walk down hallways and open doorways and shoot monsters and, and Nazis and and that was basically it. And so if if you imagine that concept of you're going through these endless levels of doom, if you map that out, you would need a couple of football fields to physically walk that space in a VR experience. However, we can cheat a little bit and not make you sick. And so we can, they've figured out, and I forget what their, their, the, the industry's kind of saying now, but if you imagine something like a 20 by 20 yard cube, so it's still pretty big space, we can cheat a right angle to be like 80 degrees or like 110 degrees. And, and your brain will still think it's a right angle depending on if, if it looks like a right angle in the game, but as you turn, you know, that the world actually spins a little bit quicker and actually turns you like 120 degrees. And so you can actually, they've done tests where you can actually get people to think that they have walked. They'll take a VR headset off and say, how far do you think you've traveled? You're like, oh, I must be like 100 or 200 feet where from where I started. They take the headset off, they're standing right back where they began. And so that's this really interesting phenomenon where you can, again, start to like trick the user's brain anyway that's a whole other it's called, hole to go it's down, called spatial but. awareness and we have none of it without <laughs> yeah. our sight we have zero right. spatial awareness i mean coming from someone who who would go swim you know for for miles if i didn't have a sight right like mm, when i would do my yeah. races if i couldn't see where i was going i'm off into nowhere even though i feel like i'm right. swimming directly straight there's no way in hell without seeing that i could do that that's right, but you can feel the water moving, right? You that's can feel the, the water moving. And that's the difference between, I think, that, Todd, and VR is in VR, we don't have the sense of the water, right? And so our yeah, bodies, yeah. If, we're, if we're trying to move without the sense of the water, aka without our feet on the ground or you know something like that, then our brain goes, oh, something's wrong, and then you, you, know, you get sick. Got um, it. But anyway, that's interesting because you're right. You know, I, I, I'm watching The Expanse right now. And they do a good job of that where they tell people the first time you go out in outer space, they're like, do not look in the stars. Make sure you look down at your feet. Hmm. And then they don't really explain that. And then they keep saying that. And you're like, oh, you get dis- you get disoriented. You don't know yeah. which way is up. You yeah. don't, you'll get lost swimming in the ocean of space. Wow. And so it was just like, a, oh, it's the same conundrum of, you know, we orientate ourselves to the world. You know, we're in Austin right now having this well. Austin, you know, we're in Austin West. And so I remember when I first moved to Austin, I got so lost. 
because I grew up on the coast and you always had a mountain in the distance. Mountains, so you'd be like, yeah. oh, that way's east. Yeah. And it, it took a really long time for me to figure <laughs> out how to tell directions without a visual marker because we don't uh, have any, you know, visual um, kind of cues here. Yeah. There. And yeah. what's and what's funny about that too is you know talking about how bad we are at spatial awareness uh, is funny when you're also thinking about how good we are at proprial reception, right? The ability to know where our body is in relation to itself and within space, and yet whenever you disconnect anything, not our body, we get really bad really quick. Or or if you close your eyes, your proprioception mm, is way hit. worse yeah. instantly unless yeah. you train it. Yeah, right. Right. And that, yeah. that's what I meant. I think really about like the swimming is that I can feel like I'm swimming straight. I can, I can bet you a hundred dollars I am. <laughs> and I absolutely am not <laughs> unless I've trained myself to be mm. able to do that over long periods of time. Right. And, and I mean, it would probably be similar in something like VR where you would have to do it so much and in a, in a, in a certain way to train you your feedback. body to actually know mm. that's 120 degrees, that's not 90 degrees, mm. or that's 80 degrees, that's not 90 degrees or whatever. Why you would do that, I don't know. But this leads me to a question for you, Ricky, which is my son has been beating me up to get a VR uh, system and they're so expensive, but I really want to do it for him because he's super interested in it. And they seem really cool. I mean, is it something that I should th think about doing for him? He's eight. He's, he's you know, kind of little. But Or is it something where like, oh, no, you know, I think in like five years, the technology is going to be totally different. The technology itself has come a long ways in the last three years. We'll get back to him being an eight-year-old in a second. But <laughs> um, and, and I know there's Wes has feelings about the content side of things, which we'll get to. But but the technology, the early days, again, this over-promise of VR, you had to have a really expensive computer, so minimum like two grand. You were tied to it. Literally, you had a cable that you were trying not to fall over. And then you'd have to also put external sensors around your room. Mm. And so that's a pain in the ass to set all that stuff up and it's expensive and like who the hell wants to do that to play a shitty game like no one after the, the, the excitement wears off the new VR systems and, and when we're talking about consumer stuff Oculus owns the market that's really the only thing you can buy an Oculus Quest 2 is 300 bucks they're oh. they come in like the size of a shoebox and they're super easy Oculus has has fixed the it's hard to use VR problem. They have external cameras on the headset. And so when you put, it's really fascinating to set up the VR headset the first time. You put it on and you start looking around your room, which looks like you're looking through like 1980s TV technology. It's really grainy and black and white. And then you see the system start mapping, creating like a matrix looking map of your room or oh, of your kitchen or of your basement. And then you draw a line where you want your play space to be and that's it. Boom. You're in. You're in wow. the Oasis at that point. It's that easy to set up. And they've even gotten the, so good now, whereas if somebody walks, so if you're, you decide to take over the VR headset, because you will inevitably from your eight-year-old, uh -huh. when they walk into it, it'll tell you like, hey, there's an object here. And it turns those cameras back on. And so all of a sudden you can see that your eight-year-old kid is standing there with a cupcake or something, right? And so the technology has really gotten pretty good. 
and and so the Oculus Quest Two is is you know it's it's a Facebook device, and you have to log on, you have to have a Facebook account to use it. So that's a different oh. that's a that's a different whole different thing to open. I see you shaking yeah. your head, right? And 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 then there's also some yeah. things that a lot of people don't talk about with VR when and this is like a sad truth in in terms of the consumer side is that those those cameras that are scanning your room to like allow you to do these amazing experiences facebook owns that data and so they're tracking what the inside of your house looks like and now they can't there's rules about what they can and can't do with that but we've seen how facebook you know does data stuff but the point there is the cool part and the downside part is their goal is to literally map the world in 3d and that way like if you want to go into another space, it would exist. Or if 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 my headset knows what Todd's house looks like and Todd's headset knows what my house looks like, now we can have really, really intimate, interesting dual player experiences. And so mm-hmm. there is a really interesting benefit that comes with that, but it's also kind of scary. With that said, we probably all have an Alexa in our house who's listening to every damn word we say. Damn so right. like, you know, yeah. the privacy situation is a totally different different conundrum. The, the other consideration, the headsets are great, and this I know. You know, Wes is always he's still waiting for that that game. I know that to come out. I can see him smiling and nodding. Right? Is <laughs> is the the content is just not very. It's lacking. It can be good. There's some really amazing games out there that'll keep you interested, but it's it is it's the it's like we're back into like Nintendo one days in terms of the depth of content, and so there's just not. There's not a lot. My my nephew's 11 has a VR headset and he plays it in spurts because he gets really into games for a while, but the games are so short that he's mm-hmm. just like, okay, like I'm used to playing video games that last for months, you know, before I finish them or whatever. And this is like, well, I beat this in four hours mm-hmm. and now what do I do? Gotcha. And the games are still 50 bucks a piece. Oof. And so, you know, it, it, there's there's definitely anyway oculus quest 2 is great there's some really really fun games and what we discovered during the pandemic last thing is they can be a phenomenal way to work out there's been a huge huge really? upcrease or in uptick in people using vr systems as an alternative to working out and so you burn a lot of calories doing like uh, beat sabers one where you basically have like lightsabers uh, oh and yeah you get I've seen blocks that. to music uh-huh. and you turn that on like medium and do it for 10 minutes and you will be standing in a pool of sweat. Um, and so it's, and there's like a really fun boxing one where you like, or, uh, I think it's called Mike. It's basically like a really modern version of Mike Tyson punch out. We'll call it. Oh my gosh. But it, I mean, it, it, I, I remember Does it have like the tactile sensing. Do I feel like, do I feel Tyson punching you can. me? I've, I've tried those suits and all they do is shock you. And so it's just, oh, it's kind of annoying. <laughs> that's it's, that's yeah, awful. Just, <laughs> <laughs> um, so, but, but they're, okay. they're a great way to like, you know, it's like, all right, you know, uh, go downstairs and, you know, play VR for 20 minutes, AKA like burn some energy. Um, wow. and so, okay. Yeah. The, the technology's gotten really good. The, the software and, and content side is still playing catch up but it's just it's very very expensive to build them um because Mm -hmm. of you know like right now if we're going to recreate me in a in a film or in a you know digital world you know it's oh all all you have to see as a user is this in vr i have to be able to let the user go back here and pick up these books and take my headphones off and look behind me and just the amount of data oh man yeah that you need because you're rendering a, a complete 3d world and even 2d video games the way that they render those worlds you're not actually rendering out a three-dimensional world it's a 2d replica of a three-dimensional world and so so you know some of these vr games 
um, are really big. There's a really beautiful VR experience that's it's basically it's a Jurassic Park thing. It's like seven minutes long, and I think it's like 15 gigabits of it's it's huge. It's a huge file to download this thing that's like seven minutes long, wow. and so like. You know, it's like, oh, you want to watch this new VR film? It's an hour and a half. Great. It's it's a half a terabyte. So get, get downloading. <laughs> and so it's just it's anyway, I can keep going. You know, there's yeah, other okay. things. Um, so but, yeah. no, that Quest dude, that's two. that's great info because I've been on yeah. the fence for a while. So, yeah. Nice. Uh, anything else you want to point out about 360 filmmaking? Like one of the things I mean, there's a lot of rundown stuff that we give clients as we're either pitching or going into production. Um, things that they need to be aware of or best practices that, Hey, here's how this is going to work. Um, uh, like for me as a director, the, those things aren't usually stuff that I'm overly concerned about the stuff that I like, you know, because if I'm working with an actor, uh, the type of performance for 360 video is very different from the type of performance you get for traditional 2d, right? Cause in traditional 2d, mm-hmm. you get coverage. You can cut to a close up for the big emotional moment, or you can stay wide in order to establish your, your scene whenever you're shooting in VR or, or 360. Uh, you're, you're not really doing any of that. You're, a scene takes place usually from one angle. Now, in special circumstances, we might cheat that a little bit, but normally we stay in one big angle and what you're trying to do is perform almost like it's almost like uh, performing for a play, a theater, right? Where you're, you're going a little bit bigger. Uh, you're staging the blocking a little bit differently because mm-hmm. you're staging it around the, the camera, like you almost would for, uh, an, an audience member. And so, all those things, you know, take finessing and, and they're different. If you're not used to directing, you know, 360, uh, it's a, it's an experience that it requires a lot of thought and foresight, not just in the blocking, uh, but also in how you compose your image, uh, because of some technical reasons, um, you don't want to necessarily, uh, run around the camera, you know, just because it creates a, a fun visual. You also have to think about, the, the process that goes into it after you're done shooting, like editing is very different and uh, in some ways convoluted and in other ways, much more simple. Yeah. Feel free to chime in on any of that thousand things I just said. <laughs> oh, I was going to say that that's a, how much time do we have left? Yeah. Uh, um, and so, yeah, you know, it's, it's, you know, I was thinking about that Wes, cause as you know, we're working through post-production on a project right now that it's relatively simple in terms of what, what is the end result for the client. It's like a documentary style thing. And so you shoot it and you have what you have and you slice it up and that's it, you know? And, and, and so, you know, one of the things that I realized you know, with our first round of feedback, the client basically saw our footage and came back and was like, oh my God, this isn't what we had in mind. And they had all these concerns, which are valid. And, and you know, it's a very short timeline. So, you know, when you're pushing on a tight timeline, that always makes things trickier. But is to think about, you know, 360 filmmaking is as similar to 2D as it is different. And you do, you know, there's a bunch of things that you really have to reconsider. And, and part of that is what you were saying, Wes, like actor performance, camera placement, you know, how you light your scene, right? If we're shooting in 360, we can see everything. Well, where the hell do you put your lights? Where do you put your gaffers? Where do you put your, you know, where do you put that stuff? Where do you put your C-stand with your microphone on it? You know, you you can't. Or you're going to be up shit creek without a paddle, as they say, when it comes to being in post. And so there's a lot of different, um, there's a lot, a lot of different aspects that you have to consider when you do that. And I think, you know, that's probably the most, the simplest way to say it is, is you have to just, 
you have to you have to be willing to reconsider what you know about storytelling and filmmaking when you shoot in, in 360 um, because otherwise you don't get a good product. And I'll pick on a local filmmaker a little bit. Robin Rodriguez did what could have been such a good VR piece a couple of years ago. And it was a really high budget piece and it makes you incredibly sick incredibly quickly. And they, he breaks, he, I don't think that he took five minutes to do research on what the like industry standard VR practices, like something you never, one of the goals of 360 video and, and VR is you give autonomy to the user. So for instance, there's this great shot in the film where you're in a fight and this woman stabs you in the stomach. And what does every single person do when they get stabbed in the stomach? They're going to go, and they're going to look down at their belly, right? And that, that head movement, that physical head movement in VR is what creates that, that feeling where you're like, oh my God, I'm being stabbed. Robert Rodriguez forced the camera. He rotated the camera 90 degrees right when that stab happened. So as a user, when you look down, all of a sudden you're staring at your neck and it was just like, and you had to look your, you had to physically lift your head back up and look straight ahead. And all of a sudden you're staring at your stomach and it was just like, well, who the hell thought that was a good idea? <laughs> and so there's a lot of shots like that in that film where it was like, okay, you told a, you're a brilliant story, Rodriguez, and you're great at that, but you you didn't fit, you did not reconsider how to tell a story in VR, and you blew it. And so anyway, it's it's that that is the that's maybe my best way to answer that question without getting you know without laying out a list of 10, 10 things here over the next twenty minutes. But is that it's it's just a new it's a new you know kind of where we we started it's a new type of storytelling and it's a new type of filmmaking and and i think that you have to be willing to to reconsider some of the norms i know that i see you doing that Wes, when we're working together your your brains you're like okay okay how's this going to work in vr uh and you just have to recalculate how your brain works um and that's also what makes this industry fun and makes this yeah. medium fun is that we get to recreate some of these things um and we get to try new things you know, one of our last projects, we did this transition where we go from a 2D screen. So it looks like you're watching a big screen TV in a VR headset. And all of a sudden it turns into 360. And, and how do you do that? And we didn't know if that was going to play. Right. And so we did this really fun transition where that 2D screen basically just envelops your head and it worked and it works really well. And so anyway, that was something where we were like, well, we've never seen this done. Like we just pitched it to the client. We're like, yeah, yeah we can do this. No problem. Of course. And so <laughs> that's we, brilliant. That's classic, great. Right. Yeah. And then and then we we tested it. Right. We built this thing out in After Effects and tried it. And we we're like, oh, wow, this this actually works kind of good. And we even kicked it around on this last project that we're mm-hmm. working on currently where we we're going to do it in reverse. Right, we had we were going to take the 360 world and we were going to shrink it back down into a 2D screen um, to focus on a really really important message that a doctor is going to deliver, and and we ended up going a different route. But but it was just again, it was this, it was fun. It was like okay, we have to yeah. think of an entirely new way to tell a visual story here, and and thinking about you know how does that affect the end user. How is that going to play in a headset? Is that going to make people uncomfortable? You know, does it hold up? I mean, just uh, anyway. So that's a there's rules, if you will, in the 360 VR space, and and I'm sure we'll continue to redefine them and break them as we as we build these these experiences up. Awesome. I think that pretty much covers all of that. I'm curious. Uh, did you bring a recommendation uh, for for our audience? A recommendation. Yeah, a recommendation for the week. Yeah. So we recommend either a, a movie or a restaurant uh, or, you know, I don't know, a book, whatever, hmm. whatever it is you're into. If you like, okay. I can, right. I can go first. If yeah. you need to. Um, oh, you're good. 
No, no, no. Um, I just have to think of the name. So Ready Player One is a fantastic VR. Ready Player One movie's pretty good. We already beat that one up pretty good. The book is great, especially if you were if you were born any time in the late seventies, the eighties, or the nineties. You'll probably really love Ready Player One. It's a fast read. Take it like on vacation. Read it on the airplane. You know, it's it's a feel good book. However, there's another VR book called Snow Crash, and that is a much more mm. adult a darker, more interesting world. And if, if somebody out there, some filmmaker out there wanted to one up, try and one up Spielberg and redo another VR movie, like re- remaking snow crash would be really interesting because it, 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 to me, it's a more realistic approach of what the, the, maybe the future of our world holds and VR. And so, yeah, check out snow crash. It's a bit, it's a denser read, and it's a little heavier, but it is, it is, it's probably my, my favorite VR story that's out there. Nice. Awesome. I'll go check it out. Todd, what do you got? Yeah, I'm going to recommend probably, I mean, I have so many favorite Spielberg films, uh, honestly, cause it, mm. you know, I sit here and I, I, I shit on one of the greats and I feel uh, not good about it. Um, but so I want to recommend a movie that, it was basically my introduction to Spielberg as a director to, to like movies that I thought, you know what, this is, this is bigger than this moment of me watching this. This is something, you know, and I watched it pretty early on, not right when it came out. It was too, it was before my time, but I'm going to recommend Jaws, um, which I'm surprised that we haven't recommended that before. Not only is it, is it timeless for me because of the music and because the music itself is timeless. Um, but the, the sense of tension that you get, not just from the music, but from, but from like, like the positions that you're put in, you know, Mm. I, I love all these, I love films that are, they force you to live in a space, right? Mm. We are forced to live on this boat on these moments and there's nowhere else you can go and you are trapped there with these characters. And it's just so great. And there's, there's also this air of like, the music is very whimsical at times, which is feels so strange. You know, (laughs) if you go back and watch it, it's like, why is this, why is this like happy major key music right now? I should be scared, but it, I don't know it, it, the dichotomy with that and the, and the ominous Donna, Donna, just actually mm-hmm. heightens those moments. So, uh, yeah, Jaws is one of one of the greats for me. Nice. I, so I, I, you guys can see me on the video here. I'm looking down at my phone, and so I, I just had to Google because I wasn't. I had to go through and remind myself of the, the the his all of the movies that Spielberg has made. Oh yeah. And there's so many great <laughs> films in here, and so that's yeah. I was just like, oh yeah, I was like, oh, I forgot he did that. I forgot he did that. I forgot he did that. And so anyway, that is. Spielberg is a. I find myself doing that every time we do a Spielberg film because I'm like, I just I need a reminder of how badass this guy is. Oh yeah, he's 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 the best. Yeah, that's so good. And just stuff. And I know it's time your recommendation, Wes, but just the 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 breadth that he has between serious stuff and and fun popcorn, you know, movies are just it's anyway staggering. Very 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 good filmmaker. Nice. I am going to double down on uh, Ready Player One, the book. So. That's my official recommendation. You'll find links to all three of these, of course. We'll put a trailer for Jaws and a link to Snow Crash and Ready Player One novels so that you can go read what this story could have been. Um, <laughs> <laughs> awesome. 
And stay tuned for next week. We're going to start our, our Halloween festivities with uh, October. Uh, we traditionally do a lot of horror films. Um, and we're going to be covering Let the Right One In, the original movie. So uh, stay tuned for that. And if you're enjoying the show, don't forget to subscribe, review us on iTunes, leave us a note. If there's something you want us to cover or talk about, uh, you can do that. And if you want to comment on this episode in particular, you can do that at the pestlepodcast.com slash Ready Player One. And our quote of the day that we'll leave you with is from Shigeru Miyamoto. A delayed game is eventually good, but a rushed game is forever bad. I I, th- I love that because I think that it's for, it doesn't just go with games, obviously. I think it's just for a lot of, you know, creative stuff. I mean, at some point it has to be, you have to let it go, right? Yeah. But, you know, there's stories, and there's stories of artists who've taken years to, you know, a musician it takes years to make an album and it turns out to be this incredible thing. And sometimes, sometimes things happen fast, but sometimes they happen slow. And I think that, that just putting something out for the sake of putting it out is definitely a, a recipe for disaster for sure. Absolutely. So for those not familiar, Shigeru, or I think, uh, he's affectionately known as Shigs. Um, he's, he's the mastermind at Nintendo who created Mario and the legend of Zelda, um, and a, a bunch of other stuff that you know and love. Those two being obviously the, the crown jewels. But I, that quote is just so good for all the reasons you just said, Todd. Um, but then even as you were talking, something jogged my memory, which was, uh, unintentional on my part, but perfect. Um, because, E.T., right, directed by Spielberg, was considered to be the biggest flop uh, maybe ever as far as video games go um, because that was developed for Atari. Um, they didn't realize, I think, E.T., the movie, was going to be such a smash. And then they, when they realized it, they were like, let's rush through a video game for, in time for Christmas so that the sales will be you know, incredible. Uh, and so they did. They rushed it. It was garbage. And it took up a lot of landfill space quite literally uh, because of all the unpurchased uh, et atari games out there and it just goes to show like everyone's going to be pissed at you for delaying a game and shiguro knows that as much as anybody because the legend of zelda is historically delayed like we're waiting even now even now it never stops like if it hasn't been delayed yet then you know they're not serious about releasing it that's that's the way you need to view that like if it hasn't been delayed it's not time yet um and so uh he he knows better than anybody like don't rush it uh people will eventually forgive you for a delayed game because then it's going to be good um whereas if you put it out then it's just going to be trashed and it's never going to recover from that yeah great point great point uh anything else to add ricky how you feeling man this is a long one it was good though yeah that was i appreciate you guys having me on that was really interesting um you know i've been i've been watching you guys rack up the the episodes for quite a long time so this is my my first time you know getting to jump in and and geek out with you guys and so thank you very much you know it was pleasure and uh you know maybe in a couple years if someone builds snow crash we can uh we can (laughs) let's do it and talk some more episode 320 dude i can't believe it's taken this long to get you on but thank you so much for all the insight man it's been a a blessing talking to you for for real yeah that's it thank you guys so much for watching or if you're on youtube or listening if if otherwise uh make sure to join us next week we're going to be doing let the right one in uh watch it before we don't want to spoil anything and leave us a comment tell us what you want us to review we love talking about all kinds of movies so uh until then i am todd i'm wes 
I'm Ricky. <laughs> Go watch some movies. Thank you.